All right, Colossians 1, let's go. Got a lot of work to do today. We have one theme that we're going to hit on today, and it is uh, reconciliation. Reconciliation in Christ, and it is a, a beautiful theme of the entire scriptures and where we are in Colossians in particular. So Colossians chapter 1, as you're, as you're opening your Bible there uh, to Colossians 1, I want to mention something. I want to get in the habit of recommending good books for you to read. And uh, I have one book in particular that I really want to highlight that I have been feasting on this week. It is a classic of Christian literature, and it has a, a great chapter about what we're going to talk about today. And it's this book by this man named John Stott. He's an English guy, and it's called The Cross of Christ. It is a classic in Christian literature, as I mentioned. Stott's kind of like kind of like the Obi-Wan Kenobi of theologians, uh, just sort of walks around in a robe and says really amazing things, and everybody kind of scratches their head and walks off. And this particular book um, has been in circulation for a couple decades, uh, and it is like, th- this, is, this is steak, man. This is, this, is not, this is not whipped cream or meringue. This is, uh, this, is, this is like tin filet mignons from Hunter's Pub, served up to you by Obi-Wan Kenobi. How awesome is that? Um, but this is, uh, this is not just something you just read, you know, as you're dozing off to bed. This is a lifetime book. Uh, read a chapter a month or whatever, but get it. If you're building a library, I really encourage you to get that. So, all right, let's go. Colossians chapter 1. Um, we have, if you've noticed, been going very slowly through the book of Colossians. And that's because there's so much in this book. There's so much in this letter, especially in this first chap- chapter. There's some really... Uh, profound and very important doctrinal truths that I think have so much to say to us. And so uh, we're going to cover four verses today. Next week we might just cover one verse, and then the week after that we'll end up the chapter. The second, third, and fourth chapters will will cover longer chunks of the text, but this first chapter in particular is just very, very rich. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read it all the way through. And I'm going to pray, and then we're going to go back and kind of, kind of unpack it uh, verse by verse. So let me read it, because I want you to get the sense of this text in its totality, these verses, about this theme of reconciliation. Look, there's a lot of things. That's a word we use a lot, right? Reconciling our checks, checkbook, the reconciliation of races. Uh, those are, I mean, it's a good thing to have your checkbook balanced. It's an even better thing for, for ethnic groups to get along but it's a far greater thing for us to be reconciled to God, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So let me read, and then let me pray. Paul writes in verse 19, which uh, the guys quoted for us today, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Well, let's pray and ask God to help us. Lord, thank you for the Bible. 
thank you for these words that you breathed out yourself and you supernaturally preserved for us through the ages. Lord, we, we come to these words now with so many situations and presuppositions and complicated circumstances in our lives and 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 thoughts and opinions but god would you humble us today before your word let the word judge us let us not judge it and in order for that to happen we need the power of your holy spirit to flow through this room in a in a special way and through our hearts blow the dust out of the temples that are our minds and our souls and bring freshness and illumination and wisdom and application to those who are believers in Jesus and to those who may not yet be born again. God, would you, in your kindness, would you, would you save people in this room today that don't know you? Would you cause their hearts to be awakened to the gospel? And would they make the decision to have faith in what Christ has done in reconciling them to you by the cross? And now give us great joy and eagerness and focus as we think through these scriptures and what Paul is saying to us. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's go to verse 19. And I want to make just a couple points and then get into the meat of reconciliation. In verse 19, Paul says, For in him all the fullness. Now think about just the, just the, just the enormity of these statements. Paul is saying that in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now we... I'm. Sometimes I really hammer on this, and I want you to know why I'm hammering on it, but then I also want to back up and kind of prod us a little bit. I, I grew up in a segment, well, I, I take, when I was a young child, I grew up in kind of a, a frozen, dead church that re, didn't really even preach the gospel or talk out of the Bible. But since I've become a Christian, most of my background has been in circles kind of the charismatic circles of the church that believes in the power of the Holy Spirit, believes in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, believes in the power of God for today. And I'm still in that camp. I believe that definitely. But sometimes in those circles of the church world, there can be an overemphasis on the gifts of the Holy Spirit and certain things that God does for us. And what sometimes can be missed in that is the the sufficiency and the power and the preeminence of Christ. And so sometimes I overreact to sometimes what I believe to be the incorrect focus of the culture that I'm still a part of in on the gifts because I think what it does is it takes away from the power and the primacy and the sufficiency of Jesus because what's sometimes communicated in our church cultures is, is that, okay, you accept Jesus and then... That's good. You can now play on Thursday nights and be on the JV, but then you have to you know, either seek this experience or get this gift or sing these type of songs or go to this type of church. And once you get that, then you can kind of play on Friday nights and, and wear your letterman's jacket on school during, during, during the day on Friday. But, um, but what, what I sometimes rail against is that sort of mindset. But what I think that can do, and here's what Paul is saying in this text. He's saying that in Christ dwells all the fullness of God, the, the, the Trinity, God the Father, 
the power of Christ's work on the cross, and God the Spirit, all of it dwells in Jesus. And so here's the point I want to make to us today, is that when you are a Christian, what happens is Christ comes and takes residence in your heart. You, you are now united to Christ. We're going to talk about that in a couple weeks. And everything that God has is yours. However, I think that when I say that, some of us are like, Okay, cool, I got it. And we kind of st- we push away from pursuing all that God has for us. And so what I think this verse is saying to us is that if you're a Christian, your life should be, think of it this way, think of a graph. Think of X and Y axis right here. And think of this as being kind of the starting point. Am I right? Am I X? You know what I'm talking about. Don't get feisty if you're a math major. So here, just think of the little axis here and your life in christ starts down here right but when your life starts in christ that's called salvation and at that moment christ the power of god the trinity the spirit resides in you according to romans 8 you become born again jesus you are united to christ and the fullness of the godhead is yours but it's still down here you're still very undeveloped and now the rest of your life should be this process called sanctification where you are gradually through your pursuit of God's word through your pursuit of the gifts of God that he has for you through your fellowship in a community of committed believers I wish I was taller because this just keeps going you should continually grow and grow now here's the thing about this process is called sanctification there are times when we take you know we if you've seen a, a graph of stock for any company on Wall Street, sometimes it takes a dip down. We know that these past two years, right? If you're a stockholder of, I guess, anything. Sometimes we, the, the graph, and that's just, that's grace, right? We're not always, sometimes we take a, a step backwards to take two steps forward. That's, it's called sanctification. It's the rugged walk of the Christian. But as we are living for Christ, the general trend of our life should be upward. And that sanctification And so there is more of Christ. There is more of God. There is more of Jesus. There is more of the Holy Spirit. There is a pursuit. There is an earnestness. There is is more that I want of Christ than we should want in Christ. And so when I say that that we are full, that we have all that there is in Christ, what I'm saying is, is that you have it. Now pursue more of it and go after God with everything that you have. But go after it in humility. And if God gives you some gift... Or he gives you some special grace to be a blessing to the body. Like be humble with that. And let's, let's do that. So for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, verse 20. Listen now, we're going to start to hit on our theme. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So verse 20 is saying that Christ has reconciled everything. He reconciles everything by his work on the cross so here's a question that i want to handle before we get into the meat of reconciliation is this verse teaching that all people are ultimately saved in the end because in if you don't read this verse carefully it may sound like that's what it's saying so um is this verse teaching what the theologians would call universal redemption or does everybody get saved because it says here that christ reconciles all things to himself well This is where you have to read the Bible in context. You have to read the Bible is one great story from Genesis to Revelation about God's redemptive work through Christ in saving lost humanity. 
And I think clearly the answer to that question is, is that no, not everyone is saved. The Bible is, and I could spend a whole Sunday unpacking verses for you that talk about how there is a real place called hell that some people will go to because of their lack of repentance and belief in Jesus. One place that I'll refer you to is Matthew chapter 25, the end of the first gospel, where Jesus says that there's coming a day when I'm coming in judgment and I'm going to separate sheep from the goats. And the sheep who have served me, I'm going to say, come unto me to your everlasting joy. And to the goats, he says, I'm going to separate you and you're going to have eternal punishment forever, separation from God, whatever. And we could spend a whole Sunday again on looking at what this concept of hell is in the Bible. And we tend to think of it in terms of hellfire and lake, and it certainly is those things. But those are just images Separation from God is far worse than any image that can be printed in English or any other language. And so there is the reality of heaven and hell. And cultural Christianity doesn't like to speak about judgment very often. It's just all happy stuff, puppy dogs and butterflies and lollipops. And if you go to a church or you're trying to find a church, you're listening to this by podcast and you're at a church where they never talk about sin and they never talk about the reality of judgment, don't just walk. Run, run away. And so there is a reality. What I think is happening here in this verse is that Paul is saying that Christ will make peace with everything, even his enemies. And this is how he does it. For those who repent and believe, God has made peace with Christians by taking out his wrath and his justice on Jesus by crushing Jesus on the cross. That's what Isaiah 53 says, that it was the will of God to crush Jesus. So God's justice is appeased. He makes peace with his enemy by defeating sin on the cross in the person of Jesus. And he makes peace with Christians because not because he let them off scot-free because no, no debt was paid, but because Jesus paid the debt. But then he makes, he makes peace with his enemies by crushing them and separating them forever. So ultimately, he gets peace. He wins. God triumphs in the end, either through crushing himself on the cross as a sacrifice for us so that we can have peace, or by crushing, as the Bible says in Hebrews, making his enemies his footstool. So Jesus, Jesus triumphs in the end. And God ultimately makes peace with all things. And that's a message we need to hear. And so you're not at peace with God. Today's your day, man. Don't look. There's no we don't have much self-help here. The best way you can help yourself is to be reconciled to God through Christ's blood on the cross. All right. Verse 21. And you who once were now listen, this is going to be important because now Paul's going to set up this theme of reconciliation And he's going to do it by going back to reminding the Colossians about their sin, right? Remember I just said a second ago, if you, you know, we talk about sin here a lot. Um, And that's important. If we stop mentioning that, and we kind of ferociously talk about it. But here's the deal. I want to, you know, we don't want to be like a fundamentalist church where, where we, we, we preach against sin, but in like a non-grace filled sort of way. 
We are all sinners. But here's the beautiful thing about sin is that Jesus crushes our sin. He takes it away. But we have to deal with our sin by repenting and believing in Jesus. And so we talk about that here. But, but when we talk about it, always know that we're talking about it within the context of grace, that Jesus comes to handle it for us. And also, remember this little graph that I that I showed you just a second ago, the imaginary X, Y, this process. Look, sin still follows us around even when we're Christians. And so Christ comes to clean us over the course of time and make us more like himself. But Paul reminds them so that they always remember what Christ has done for them. This is what it's like. He's going to talk about He's going to talk about their alienation and their hostility in their mind and how they were doing evil deeds. And then he goes into reconciliation. This is what it's like. Jennifer's grandfather was a uh, was a jeweler, and he um, he was from Indiana. He was the son of German Austrian immigrants, and he came here. Uh, he was born in America, lived in Indiana, and he was drafted for World War II. And he came to Fort Benning, Georgia, back in the late 30s and early 40s. And he went through Fort Benning, met a girl from Columbus who was Jennifer's grandmother and married. And, and then he came back from war and he became a jeweler. And he was the jeweler in the back of Schomburg's up until he, when he died a couple of years ago. Great man of God. His name was Ernie Groman, Jennifer's grandfather. He was a jeweler at Schomburg's since the 40s for 65 years or so. And when I went to uh, Pop, as we called him, to help ask for his consultation and picking out a diamond in order to ask Jennifer to marry me like all jewelers you know what he did to make that stone pop he pulled out a black piece of cloth right I mean a diamond is a beautiful stone even if you're looking at it against the sun but it becomes even more brilliant when you put it on top of a black cloth because against the backdrop of that blackness you see the brilliance of that diamond pop You know what I'm talking about? Pop! (laughs) I just like the way that sounded. (laughs) And that's what Paul is about to do here. And he says now in verse 21, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. And so against the backdrop Those of you that have been Christians in this Colossian church for six weeks, or those of you that have been Christians for 30 years, against the backdrop of your alienation and your hostility against God and your evil deeds, Christ has reconciled you. And when you continually see the diamond of your salvation and the diamond of your reconciliation against the black backdrop of our rebellion against God, salvation and grace and Christ pops. And becomes more brilliant and ultimately causes us to worship God more and display his character better in our life. And so there's three things I want just quickly to move through with our reconciliation that I think this verse teaches. First is that we are reconciled to God, which is the most important. He says that we have been reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Go to Romans chapter 5. It's over to the left. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and Romans. Romans chapter 5. The most important letter ever written. The letter to the Romans. 
This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 5. And by the way, I hear Bibles flipping, and that's awesome. We put the scriptures up on the screen, not so that... um, not so that you won't open your Bibles, but so that it'll help those of you that may not have Bibles or help people that aren't yet super familiar with it. But it's really, really good to flip through your Bible and become familiar with where it is in your Bible. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 9 about reconciliation to God. Verse, Romans chapter 5, verse 9. He says, Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more, listen, this is a really important sentence. You don't hear much about this in contemporary Christianity, but it's, it's supremely important. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. We, we have to be rescued. God is not, God's not just sort of this benevolent Santa Claus grandpa type figure who's up in heaven saying, ah, it's okay. He, because he's good, he's good not in, a, not in a Santa Claus grandpa sort of way, but he's good in a holy, righteous, pure, just sort of way. And in order to maintain that character, he is angry with his creation's rebellion against him. And his just response to sin, our sin, is wrath. But here's the good news. He pours out that wrath on Jesus for those that will repent and believe. So it says... Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. That's another word you don't hear very often. We, we were enemies of God. And this is a hard thing to swallow, right? Because we're relatively decent people, most of us, morally. Maybe, you know, maybe we've got a couple bad things on our record or whatever, but but most of us have not done the types of atrocities that we associate with really bad people. But I I heard this video by a a man named Tim Keller, who's a pastor of a church in Manhattan, New York City, great preacher. He's written a book called The Prodigal God, Recovering the Heart of the Christian Faith. If you want to read a treasure, it's a short little book. Pick that book up, The Prodigal God. It is an, it's an explanation of the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. And in it, Tim Keller talks about how God comes to save not only the rebellious younger brother who squanders his father's inheritance by living a life of rebellion and atrocity against the father, but he also comes to rescue the older, religious, righteous brother. And the deal with us, most of us, most of us, see, we, we, it's very easy for us to see the grace of the gospel for the crazy, whack, wild, party, crazy, rebellious person and say, oh, yeah, God has grace for him. But it's harder for us in a religious culture to realize that God also desires to save the self-righteous person because we are enemies of God in our self-righteousness because we think that because we're pretty good people that we should be accepted because we're not nearly as bad as the other person. And you know what that is? That is idolatry. That is trusting in our own righteousness. We become thieves of God's glory. And we are enemies of God in our goodness because our motivation behind our goodness is so that we would be better than the next guy and be accepted based on our own goodness. And that is 
That's being a glory thief. And that makes us enemies of God. So you see, we need not only to be saved from our wicked rebellion, we need to be saved from our righteous self-absorption because we think we're better than the other guy because we haven't done the bad stuff. But our motivations for doing the good stuff is wicked as well. And so that's what Paul is saying in Romans when he says that we're all enemies of God, but we were reconciled to God by the death of his son much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So just a one little point or two of, applica- of application, the implications of this. If we've been reconciled to God, if you're a Christian, and what it means to receive Jesus is that you repent, you believe, you trust in what Christ did alone as your righteousness, not on your self-righteousness. You trust and believe. The implications of that are enormous. That means that there is now, as Romans 8 says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, are you struggling with guilt over past sin? Are you in a marriage where one of the partners has failed in some way and there's been reconciliation, but it's kind of only been lip service and you are sort of holding that over your spouse. If we have been reconciled to Christ, the implications of this are enormous. If, we, if our sin has been dealt with once and for all by Christ in his body of flesh, Jesus died. Jesus, Jesus took sin upon his shoulders and he absorbed it all. If if Christ was truly sufficient and he truly removed sin, then what right do we have to bring up our own sin before him again in the form of guilt and shame and self-pity? I, I, do, I do that all the time. Here's how it works out in my mind. God, how could you really work through me to be the pastor of this church when I used to be this? How can you do that, God? And ultimately what I'm saying is that that little thing I did when I was a teenager or when I was a young lieutenant in the army, now I, know you can, I know you can rescue a, you know, a murderer and a thief, but, but God, my little thing, no, 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 you don't understand how powerful that was. In fact, my sin, Jesus, overpowers your wrath-absorbing sacrifice on the cross. And I know it's hard, Jesus, but... My stuff actually deserves to be continually brought up in my mind because my sin's a little bit more powerful than the stuff I read about in the Bible. How ridiculous does that sound? But that's sort of what we do in our minds, isn't it? No, Jesus, I know you died, and I know you're like the Savior of the world and stuff, but man, when I, back of that El Camino, (laughs) woke up that one day not knowing how I got there, that's... How could, now, how, Jesus, how could you work through me? That, that's, that's stealing glory. And by the way, I, I actually have never woken up in the back of an El Camino. I don't, know why, I don't know why I keep saying that. So the implications are is that there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you struggle with condemnation? and guilt, and shame, and fear of exposure of who you used to be. You may struggle with, and this is part of sanctification, you may struggle with identity 
And, and you may, that's okay. That's why being part of a church that preaches out of the Bible and is grace-filled community, that's why, being, that's why you need to open up and say, hey, man, don't deal with that alone. If you're dealing with that, don't let this beat you up. Let that encourage you and say, hey, man, I need prayer. I'm, just, I'm plagued with guilt. I'm plagued with shame. I'm plagued, plagued with self-absorption. And I know this is not what God has given me in the cross. And so I need to pursue more of God's fullness, more of the fullness that we just read about. And so come down and be prayed for. Get part of a group. Start to meet with people and work through that together. And what happens is, is that we receive more and more and more of an understanding of what Christ did for us on the cross. And that's growth. That's sanctification. All right, go to Ephesians chapter Two. So the first thing is, is that God in Christ on the cross has reconciled us to himself. And then he has very quickly, let me just move through this. He has reconciled us to one another. This is important, especially if we're going to say we're going to do life together more than just an hour and a half on Sunday mornings. It's easy to come in and put on a happy face, sing a couple songs, you know, get up and preach a sermon but let me tell you, it's harder to live life together, right? Because we got jagged edges. Sheep bite. We bite each other. We talk about each other. We gossip about one another. We're insecure. We compete with one another. Don't we? We're mad at each other. This is what we do. And so it's hard to do life together. It's hard to live out the implications of reconciliation together as a group. But when we do that, it actually becomes a beautiful example to the world. And this is what Paul says about how we are reconciled, not only to God, most importantly, but also to one another. And in this passage that I'm about to read, what he's doing here is he's taking the Gentiles and the Jews, two different ethnic groups. The world at that time was Jews, ethnic Jews, descendants of Abraham, and Gentiles, which is everybody else, which is most of us in this room. And so there was this tremendous animosity between the Jews and the Gentiles. And now Christ has come and he has died not just for God's chosen people in the Old Testament, but he's died for everyone, both Jew and Gentile. And one of the early issues in the early church was this racial tension. I mean, you think that the civil rights movement was bad in America back in the 60s? And it was. It paled in comparison to the tension and the animosity between the Jews and the Gentiles back in biblical times. And now the message of the gospel in the New Testament is that Christ has come for everybody. So you have all these self-righteous, ethnocentric Jews having to grapple with the fact that these dirty, nasty, pork-eating Gentiles are now part of the gig. And there's tremendous animosity. And these Gentiles who are getting the gospel preached to them saying, we've got to hang out with these cats. They've been spitting on us for centuries. And Christ comes and he breaks down this animosity between these two people and if he can do it between a jew and a gentile in the first century he can do it for you and your friend that you're mad at and this is what he says therefore remember that at one time you gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands remember that you were at that time separated from christ alienated from the commonwealth of israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without god in the world so you were you were separated. You had no ability to get in the covenant because you weren't one of God's people. But verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off 
have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Same theme that we just read about in Colossians. The blood of Christ on the cross is what does the reconciling. Verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, which existed between ethnically the Jews and the Gentiles, and between all humanity and God, by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. So now there is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is one humanity in Christ. Now there's neither Brookstone or Columbus or, or no, Brookstone and Pacelli, right? Those are the rivalries. Or Columbus and Northside or Auburn and Alabama or black or white or Mexican or whatever. There's, there's, there's people and there's Jesus. And there's those that have been reconciled to God and to one another through the cross. Verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The hostility there has a double meaning, not only between us and God, but also between us and one another. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So here's the implication. We've been reconciled to God, but we've also been reconciled to one another. It's not enough to live out your faith and your salvation in Christ individually and still hold grudges. So here's the deal. Look, we're going to, in just a moment, I'm going to wrap this puppy up. The guys are going to come back and sing. We're going to take communion. We're going to pray. And you may have some issues with some people that are even in this room. Or you may have some wedge between you and a brother or sister that's not here today. And what I'm pleading with you is, is that living out this message of reconciliation insists that we handle that. That we handle it with humility and grace and tenacity to say that I cannot live in a state of brokenness with you. And so I'm just praying right now. God, if there are issues between me and a brother, you and a sister or brother, don't let that root of bitterness grow up in your life and negate the power of the reconciling work of Christ. It blunts the beauty of the gospel in your life. And so right now, if somebody's coming to your mind, you need to, whether they're in this room or whether they're outside of this room, at the earliest appropriate convenient time, make reconciliation. Now, that may be a process. You may need a mediator. You may need several meetings. You may need to pray yourself up before you go. But it is not, it is, we, we do not have the luxury, and it's really not a luxury. We do not have the ability as Christians to stay in broken relationship with one another. And that's what Paul is saying here. So he reconciles us to God. He reconciles us to one another, and ultimately, quickly, he through us reconciles a lost world to himself. And I end with this, and then we'll sing. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, after Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. So he reconciles us to God, he reconciles us to one another, and then through us, through these messed up, very much in process people somewhere along the graph, who at times are taking steps backwards, who at times have problems amongst one another, who at times deal with guilt and shame, who are by no means perfect through people like us. God reconciles the lost world to himself. And he says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, beautiful verse, 
17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Verse 18, All this is from God. Listen to this now. Who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And it would be beautiful if there was just a period right there, but it's not. We're not meant to just be cul-de-sacs, little containers that fill up with God, but we're supposed to be conduits that through us God does something. So it continues, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him, and entrusting to us, <laughs> to us, to places like Crosspoint, to people like us, the message of reconciliation. Verse 20, therefore we are, Christ's, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so here's the last point and an example for you, is that through rugged, messed up, doubt-filled, anxious, battling with shame and guilt, jacked up, interpersonal relationship, selfish, at times glory-thieving people like us, God works through... And builds us as individuals, calls us into a community so that together we will live this rugged life and become an aroma of Christ. None of us will be superheroes. It's not just one guy having the answers or being the great evangelist or one person having the great skill. But through us, Christ reconciles a world to himself. And this is how he does it. Because a lot of times I'll, hammer, I'll just hammer it and say, yeah, you know, be a reconciler. But what does that mean? We've got a guy in our church who is an elementary school teacher and God has laid it on his heart to ask other teachers in his school to identify at-risk boys in third fourth and fifth grade and he through the vehicle of this after-school club I think it's called like the green club it's kind of an environmental deal that he's every teacher's got to do an after-school club he's doing this he's the one he's the teacher in charge of this deal but he's going to kind of go and recruit and try and get kids that are at risk, that have difficult home lives, so that he can be an influence on those kids in that school. And he's not going to be a crazy weirdo about it and, you know, slip tracks and, you know, try and be a freak about it and do anything he shouldn't do according to the civil law of the land. But he's going to model Christ before these boys. That is, that is spectacular. We've got a, an, an how do I say this? Old, not older, but like my age, <laughs> lady who a little bit older than me in this room, and she has a heart for younger mothers and younger women, and she's raised several kids, and their teenagers are beyond right now, and she's always asking, hey, who is somebody that I can pour my life out to? And just through not waiting on a program, not waiting on a sermon, not waiting on some class, she just is, and she, look, she's a wonderful lady, but she's not perfect. She's got issues. She's got doubts, struggles like all of us do, but she's just sharing what she has with some younger women in this room and in our community. And there's a gentleman, there's an older guy in this church, and he's doing the same thing. He's just kind of unpacking. There's young husbands that are getting together just to bless us. Hey, man, this is where I am. Let's go through the Bible. And so we just become reconciling agents. We become like little grace pods that God uses to infect beautifully our community and that's how he works through 
people just like us. In Christ, on the cross, God is reconciling the world to himself, to one another, and then is using messed up people like us to do it. The guys are going to come back now and lead us in the song of response and worship. I know the hour is late, but I don't want to miss this opportunity for us to respond to Jesus. Here's what I want to ask you. As we just kind of spend some time here thinking on the Lord. Asking the Holy Spirit to come in and blow fresh through our lives. The first thing I want to ask is, have you been reconciled to God? There is a real judgment that awaits every person. Hebrews 9 says that it's appointed unto all men to die, and after that comes the judgment. Look, we're not into fear tactics here, but here's the reality is is that if your sin, if you're trusting in yourself, or if you're coming to God merely for self-help or religious or moralistic uh, assistance, you are probably not believing in Jesus for salvation. The scriptures are clear that those whom are reconciled are those who have repented and believed in Jesus. Repentance means to turn away from self-reliance and rebellion against God. It doesn't mean that you now leave, leave, uh, lead a perfect life, but it means that you turn from those things and you make a decision to trust, to put the weight and the force of your life in and on and to embrace as the treasure of your life what Christ did. Have you done that today? Are you at peace with God? Has God forgiven your sin by crushing Jesus for you and giving you Jesus' righteousness? If you are not sure of that, I implore you, I plead with you, be reconciled to God by turning from self-reliance and trusting in God. If your heart is beating a hundred beats a minute right now and you're wondering whether or not that's true in your life, that is probably an indication that the Holy Spirit right now is awakening your soul to the reality and the enormity and the necessity of the cross of Christ. You've got to do something with it right now. I'm not going to embarrass you, ask you to raise your hand, bring you down. It's not some magic trick prayer. It's not filling out a card. The Bible says in order to become a Christian and to be reconciled to God, you must repent and believe. And those are two edges of the same sword. It means go to Jesus, have faith in the cross. And as you are going to Jesus, you are simultaneously making a decision to leave, to turn from self-reliance and rebellion. And what happens then is Christ takes your sin away. He absorbs it. He already has. And that now becomes yours in effect. And you become a new creature. You are born again. You now are, as the Bible says, saved from God's wrath. And now you begin this beautiful, rugged, slow process of sanctification. So that means that you're not going to be instantly all better. doesn't mean that stuff in your life that's jacked up is all of a sudden going to be instantly untangled. It means that now 
for the rest of your life, how many more years God gives to you, you as you pursue all the fullness of Christ are going to be an example of how God saves sinners in your life, in your sanctification, in your pursuit of God, in your growth, even in its slowness and frustration is going to be a reflection of God's grace. You have to repent and believe. So do that right now. The rest of us that are already believers and followers, sons of God, do you need to be reconciled to a brother or sister? Do you need to look more intently on the diamond of Christ's reconciliation and realize that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Do you need that anchor to sink down deeper into your soul? so that you would be free from self-absorption and freed up in a greater way to worship Jesus in all his fullness. Is that you? If that's the case, then let's respond to God. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be quiet. We need to respond. Let's all stand.